We have been in the midst of an extended sermon series on the service of song. How does God want us to worship Him in song? This has become a rather lengthy endeavor. There is much in the history to inform our beliefs and our practices concerning these things. History is detailed and complex. So I thought that it might be good to come aside for a short space and remember why this is so very important in the hope that in remembering the importance of this doctrine it might stir us again and renew our vigor for these studies however long they might prove to be. This has led us back to fresh considerations of the regulative principle. Once again, this is that biblical principle that if God has not commanded a thing to be done in his worship, we consider it forbidden. So we do all that God has commanded in his worship. We do not subtract from it, but neither are we free to add anything to it having proven that from the scripture it seemed good to me to take some time to consider why this is so very important why would we be at such pains with respect to biblical study to arrive at right apprehensions and thoughts concerning these things and why would we be even willing to suffer separation and even some measure of hostility from those we esteem to be brethren over these principles. Last week we looked at uh, two elements of the importance of this doctrine. First of all, because the will of God is your sanctification. It's always a great question, what is God's will for my life? To put things very simply very directly and yet emphasizing the thing that is most important as Paul told the Thessalonian Christians this is the will of God even your sanctification our primary concern as Christians is to trust in the Lord acknowledge him in all of our ways in the belief that he will make the path straight that he will lead us to our proper vocation this is a matter of simple obedience but hopefully I do paint it in its true colors and to sweeten it this is about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is the Savior Christ lovely in your eyes have you come to some appreciation of his moral worth and character Our Lord Jesus Christ always obeyed God perfectly and always worshipped him exactly as he had commanded. When it came to the requirements of the ceremonial law and its worship, our Lord Jesus Christ was ever blameless. And we are to follow him in this path. Why is the regulative principle of worship so important? Because the will of God for your life is your sanctification we looked also at a second reason last week 
because prescribed worship rightly communicates the nature and attributes of God. Negatively, departures from prescribed worship have a great tendency to obscure God's nature as worship becomes uh, mixed with merely human elements and since mankind is not a source of revelation or right knowledge of the divine being there's a great tendency in all of it to obscure God's nature we prefer his worship and right notions of him recede into the background but positively speaking the ordinances as prescribed by God are all word centered and purposefully designed to rightly communicate God's nature. When you think about the ordinances, the reading and preaching of God's word, prayer according to the word of God, and the pleading of its promises, the sacraments, which as Reformed Christians, we do claim to be word-centered and word-dependent. After all, apart from teaching preaching and the words of institution water, bread and wine is just water, bread and wine all of the significance comes with the word preached and the promise proclaimed and finally we even considered a bit of uh, the Psalter and how it preserves uh, true notions of God Today I wanted to take up two two more reasons and then Lord willing look at two or three more next week. Why is the regulative principle of worship so important? Because prescribed worship preserves and communicates the gospel. That one and only way in which man can be saved. We have a very large illustration of this under the Old Testament. The Old Testament administration of worship was designed both to preserve and to communicate rightly the gospel to God's people. And we see under that old administration that God had a great jealousy over his worship. That tabernacle and temple and the ordinances performed in there. That those things be preserved pure and entire not be mixed with anything merely human because in that tabernacle in its worship the gospel was preached to his people and any sort of decline or alteration of that worship would have a great tendency to obscure both the Savior Christ and his gospel of free grace the Old Testament is full of illustrations I have selected just a few First of all, consider the sacrificial lamb that was to be pure and spotless. This sacrificial lamb, this lamb slain without blemish, was, in a way, gospel preaching. And to alter the ordinance would obscure the gospel. Inasmuch as it was a sacrificial lamb, We were taught the very important principle that a sacrifice was necessary to remove the guilt of sin. And without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission of sin. 
remember that uh, Christ was uh, always lamb-like in his suffering. And we find that the sacrificial animals were not wild and ferocious animals, but tame, docile, and gentle animals. We can read in Isaiah chapter 53 concerning Christ as a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shears he was dumb. And as much as that lamb had to be pure and spotless, we are taught concerning Christ's sinlessness and his perfection. And even the repetition of the lamb sacrifice taught us something very important as Paul makes use of it in the epistle to the Hebrews it taught us that the lamb itself was not ultimate and was not adequate to take away the guilt of sin so the sacrificial lamb has taught us about an atonement for sin but could not truly atone for sin and so it points beyond itself to the Savior Christ that sacrifice that would once and for all deal with the guilt of sin and it is very different for our Jesus there was no necessity that he be sacrificed again and again but having been sacrificed once and for all he ascended into heavenly places and sat down as a mighty Savior who had completed his work another example We were taught under the old administration that the Aaronic priest was necessary to offer up the incense prayers of God's people. If our prayers are to be accepted, they must pass through the hands of a mediator. Otherwise, we can find no acceptance with God. The incense must be offered by a priest this pointed forward to our great high priest the Lord Jesus Christ the uh, ironic priests died and Paul said that this also was a thing very significant and it showed that they were ultimately inadequate they were not able to deal with their own sins much less the sins of any others at least not ultimately and then finally they died which pointed beyond themselves to the Savior Christ. Because ultimately we had been promised a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But Aaron died and was laid in the ground. Eliezer died and was gathered to his fathers and Phineas and all of the others. But only Jesus Christ was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God had a great zeal that in this preaching of the gospel under the old administration that it not be changed. Do you remember what happened when King Uzziah usurped the priestly prerogative and made bold to offer incense on behalf of the people of God? He was struck with leprosy showing God's great displeasure because ultimately this was a perversion of the gospel not a king but a priest that is necessary for the offering up of the incense 
prayers. And even in as much as Uzziah was forbidden, we're taught a very important principle too, the inadequacy not only of the priests of the old administration, but also of her kings. And that ultimately the priesthood and the kingship could only be united in one. That was in Jesus Christ. Under the old administration, they were forever divorced, which had them pointing once again beyond themselves. The king, who was a Judahite, couldn't be a Levite and thus be a priest. And the Levite priest couldn't be a Judahite king. It was a thing impossible. But our Lord Jesus Christ, although born of the uh, sons of Judah, was a priest for forever, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king. Uh, we can go. Uh, we could go on, and I don't want to multiply examples to belabor the point. But not too long ago, you remember. Um, we saw God's displeasure in Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu changed the ordinance. They offered incense, as was their prerogative and duty as priests, but they took the fire from some other place rather than the uh, altar of burnt offering. God calls it a strange fire. They put their incense upon that strange fire and God destroys them by fire. And this also was a perversion of the gospel. Because our prayers will not be accepted apart from a sacrifice offered and accepted. In other words, the reception of our prayers is dependent upon something antecedent. The brazen altar and its sacrifice offered and accepted. To change God's worship under that old administration was to obscure Christ and pervert the gospel. And we see God's great zeal that Christ and his gospel be rightly preached in those old ordinances. This is not just an Old Testament consideration. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 8. With the closing of the old administration and the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, there was an end put to the old priesthood. The old priesthood had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and passed away. Indeed, we might say it was fulfilled and continues, but only in the person of Jesus Christ who has ascended on high and ever lives to make intercession for us. Rome has perverted the gospel in calling her ministers and officers priests, a thing that ought not to be done. And it's not just a priest in word, but a priest in deed, inasmuch as they teach the people that you need one of these human priests and functionaries to stand between you and God and to minister God's grace to you. The rise of this gospel perversion is prophesied in the 8th of Revelation. We'll begin reading in verse 1. 
And here we anticipate some of our work in our sermon series on, on Revelation. But uh, it's a thing of immediate interest to us now. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. I will endeavor to prove all of this shortly in coming weeks. We're soon to be finished with uh, Revelation chapter 5, and then we will be on our way to the history of this great time. Revelation uh, chapter 6 and 7, you have the six seals of the book opened. And these six seals deal with uh, pagan Rome and the various changes it undergoes, with some eye cast upon how these changes affect the people of God. With the opening of the seventh seal, we have the rise of papal Rome, pagan Rome. The dragon gives way to papal Rome, the beast. One of the principal sins of papal Rome has been in its worship and in the interposition of human priests between a man and God. This priest mediator is conceived of as being necessary for salvation and baptism in the sacrament of penance in the mass and last rites and so on this priest becomes the mediator of saving grace to your soul and this uh, priestly principle finds its consummation in the great and grand priest mediator not the Lord Jesus Christ but the Pope the vicar of Christ on earth this is a great perversion of the gospel this has a great tendency and Rome has put it to a very large experiment to push the Lord Jesus Christ into the background so Christ goes into the background and the other mediators come into the foreground angels, departed saints popes and priests they become the great business of religion And in all of this, Christ is greatly misrepresented. He is portrayed to uh, the Roman Catholic as being angry and irreconcilable apart from 
the intervention and mediation of human priests. But the human priest is ready to help, or the departed saint, or one of the angels. How different from uh, Jesus as he is portrayed in the scriptures being tenderly affected and touched with the feelings of your infirmities. Jesus Christ making himself open and available to the believing saint as spiritual bread and spiritual drink for the sustenance and the nourishment of your soul. Jesus Christ as the constant companion of the believer standing at the door and knocking and waiting admittance so that he might come in and have fellowship with you and you with him. Jesus Christ in the Roman system has been displaced as the only mediator between God and man. And it is week by week, year by year, and century by century reinforced by its perverse worship. And you begin to see some of the importance that these issues carry. We see in Revelation chapter 8 the great indignation of the angel of the covenant. During the Middle Ages, Jesus Christ would continue to mediate the prayers of believers before the throne of grace and find acceptance for them. But inasmuch as he is being displaced by that Roman church, he shows his indignation. He's portrayed as filling that incense bowl with fire and then casting it down upon the earth in his indignation. And that is the beginning of those seven trumpet blasts of judgment that would come upon the, the uh, Roman church. But as I mentioned last week, we should consider this even in more subtle ways or we'll lose the value Uh, as Protestants a lot of times we think to ourselves well that's Rome and that's their great and grand departures and great departures they are indeed but if we would know the way of our own fallen nature those great departures come on by degrees and they usually start with things subtle and a little compromise here and a little winking of the eye there and before you know it you are on the Uh, fast decline I would say that in uh, the departure of Protestantism from the regulative principle of worship we have in that all by itself a fundamental gospel mistake because in the gospel we are taught that if we are to make any approach unto a holy God if we are going to find acceptance in his sight it is going to be on his terms and so he will speak unto us in this way there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus or there is given under heaven no other name by which we must be saved one Christ and one gospel and one way of salvation and if we will make any approach unto him it will be in the way of his prescribing it is the same form in worship if we are going to find acceptance in his sight it's going to be by making an approach unto him on his terms Uh, 
we're, we're going to we're going to come to this, and this really deals with my my next large point. But in our worship, we make our approach unto God in Christ Jesus. We won't find any acceptance within in our worship apart from a full and free justification. But then, in addition to that, we won't find any acceptance for our worship apart from Christ's ongoing mediation and intercession. And little flock, Christ has not promised to mediate on our behalf any other ordinances than those which he himself has commanded. And this is part of living in a practical contact with our Savior. So before I come to that point, because it's really the business of the next point, I just encourage you as a practical exercise to think through the gospel implications of subtle departures in our worship. How it has a tendency to obscure Christ and the gospel because they are many this brings me to uh, my next point one that comes very close to my own heart why is the regulative principle of worship so important because in maintaining prescribed worship we hold fast to Christ in his threefold mediatorial office This is, this is an aspect or a facet of holding fast to Christ the head in a very practical and living manner. Let me read to you a portion of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We, we had an opportunity to study it not too long ago, but I remind you of the words. Paul tells them with respect to their worship, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Here he warns them about departures from uh, the worship as it had been given to them or delivered to them by the apostles themselves. He warns them about pagan elements and pagan teachers in their midst who would make a foreign form of worship seem very wise and even humble in some ways. You know, the, the Roman worship can sound humble in this way. It works something like this oh I'm I'm much too uh, lowly to make any approach directly to Jesus Christ and so um, I'll make an appeal to one of the angels or to Mary it's a similar thing with the Colossians a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels Um, Paul will by the end of the chapter say it simply has a show of humility Because ultimately, true humility is going to be submission to the Lord in all things. Not the invention of our own religion, no matter how humble that humanly devised religion might appear. Uh, This is a departure and a letting go of the head. 
Jesus Christ. The converse is true. That in holding fast to the apostolic worship as it has been delivered to us, we hold fast to the head. And in holding fast to him, notice what's said here, the whole church is edified. Nourishment runs down from the head to the whole body, which increases with the increase of God. This is living and practical contact with Christ in his threefold office. It's, it's an interesting thing. I know that sometimes uh, these considerations can seem uh, rather cold, but here I am not talking uh, about rules. I'm talking about spiritual life. Commandments have a bearing, but we are talking about spiritual life and a living, practical contact with the Savior as prophet, priest, and king. So consider our worship and Christ the prophet. Christ has always been, for the church, the prophet par excellence, the ultimate prophet, the prophet uh, who spoke through all of the other prophets. Peter says this, he says, uh, of which salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That's First Peter chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. Here Peter teaches us that it was the spirit of Christ, the great prophet of the church, who spoke through all of those prophets under the old administration. Prescribed worship, the regulative principle of worship, ensures that in our worship, it is his voice that we hear and not the voice of another. We have noticed and observed that all of the ordinances are word-centered reading and preaching prayer, sacraments the singing of the songs everything is the word the word, the word to ensure that it's Christ's voice that we hear, that we have blessing in our midst, the blessing of his prophetic ministry to us the greatest danger in all of the ordinances as far as departures if they're maintained just like this would really be in the office of preaching and this is why there have always been such high requirements for the preacher in the history of Christianity that he be a man of the word and that he have uh, the form of sound words in his mind so that the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ would be preserved in the preaching as well. We do well when we learn to think of our worship as Jesus Christ, the prophet of the church, speaking to us. And we must have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to see him and to hear his voice. In our prescribed worship, we also maintain a practical contact with our priest. 
the shorter catechism, uh, and you could break this up into uh, parts, but the shorter catechism reduces Christ's priestly work to two parts. His atoning sacrifice, removing the guilt of sin, and his intercession for us at the throne of grace. With respect to our worship, we believe and we know from the scripture that our ascended Lord Jesus Christ is now before the throne of grace, pleading his shed blood so that we might find acceptance in our worship, even though we know that our worship will not be perfect and sinless, even if we get all of the uh, external things correct, we will still have the many blemishes and defect of the heart. And so we have a great need of cleansing right now for the errors that we are making right now and of his intercession so that we might find acceptance. And happily we can say that once Christ has expunged the guilt of our sin and carried it away, all that is left is the work of his spirit in us, which is always well-pleasing in the sight of the Father. Our worship cannot be accepted apart from his priestly work. But the only worship that will be accepted on high is that which he has promised to mediate. And the only worship that he has promised to mediate on our behalf is the worship that he himself has commanded. The logic of it works something like this. Christ has commanded us to worship in these ordinances. And this implies his promise to mediate these ordinances because he has told us that he has never told us to seek him in vain. In other words, he doesn't, he's not going to command us to do something that's going to end up being a vain or empty seeking of him. In seeking, we will find him. So the commandment to perform these ordinances implies his promise to mediate them. And so we can offer these ordinances in faith believing the promise of the scripture that he will mediate these and we will be accepted in these ordinances. But no humanly invented ordinance can be offered in faith because there is no promise of mediation attached to it. And as uh, the scriptures testify everywhere, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You have to understand that, that faith is connected to promises. So when we have a Bible promise, we can exercise our faith upon that promise. But where there is no promise, even if we say that we're exercising faith, it's not faith in the Bible sense, it's presumption. Faith can only be exercised upon the promises. So again, the commandment to worship in these ordinances implies the promise. And since we have a promise, we can come in faith, trusting in his mediation and knowing that he will mediate on high. But apart from these ordinances and ordinances of human invention, there is no promise. And so there is no faith. And so it is nothing but sin. 
nothing but sin. And remember what our fathers in the faith uh, told us concerning good works, that our good intentions and even religious motivation cannot make a sinful thing good. It is true that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ for his people, even in their defects in worship, will carry away the guilt, but he will not mediate those ordinances. They end up being vain and empty and wasted. Let me try to illustrate this to you in a way that's very simple, but I think will bring it home. Imagine that you lived in those ancient times under the old administration. And this will teach you clear gospel lessons. You're going up to the tabernacle with your sacrifice. You could be very confident that that faithful priest of the altar will help you and mediate for you, performing the priestly function, provided you come with the prescribed ordinances. But if he be a faithful priest, you cannot expect his help if you pervert the ordinances. If you bring a blemished animal, he will not help you. If you bring an unclean animal, he will not help you. If you uh, bring it in any way that's not in conformity with the prescribed ordinances, you will not find a priest ready to help, but frowning, disapproving, disciplining priest who will not admit you to the ordinance. But when we come in uh, the prescribed ordinances, we could count on his help. And uh, so it is with our uh, Lord Jesus now. So consider these things. This is practical, living contact with the Savior. And finally, this brings us into contact with the King. Living contact with the King. As we have had occasion to observe in previous weeks, evangelicalism will say Jesus is Lord and King and the language of kingship is retained. But when it comes to worship, they seem to have no notion that Christ has any preferences concerning anything one way or another. And so you have a king who, practically speaking, does not function as a king because he issues no commands, expresses no desires one way or another, maybe in the broadest way, like he forbids us to use idols, and we're supposed to have baptism and the Lord's Supper. But apart from these things, you have a king who issues no commandments, if I might say so, a king for the most part who is a king in name only. Is it not true in most of evangelicalism that it is more uh, in keeping with the saying of judges that in these days there is no king in Israel and so that when it comes to the worship of God everyone simply does what's right in his own eyes. The language of kingship without the reality of kingship. But as we open the book of the living God, we find that our king has issued commands concerning worship. That the pages of scripture are filled with commandments concerning worship and practical instruction concerning it. Indeed, almost every page and almost every chapter have some bit of bearing upon the great issues concerning worship. 
And he has also bidden us, is it not the voice of the king that has told us to do all that he's commanded, not to take away and not to add, and then confirmed that particular word with the threats of terrible curses should these things be changed. Another way of saying this, little flock, these are the courts of the living God. These courts belong to the king. Here, everything is to be done according to his mind and for his good pleasure. And are we not a people made willing in the day of his power that we want him to rule over us? It's not, it's not, then it's no longer a negative thing, you see. We, we no longer feel restricted by his commandments. We want him to rule over us so that with whole hearts we can say with John, his commandments are not grievous. We want him to rule over us. We want him to tell us what to do. We want him to instruct us. We want him to lead us. It is the desire of our hearts. If I, might, if I might reorganize some of this material, it deals with all three offices, but I wanted to just briefly touch upon our living contact with Jesus Christ in the singing of the Psalms. When I was first exposed to exclusive psalmody, one of the first objections that I heard was that uh, it seemed very strange that we as Christian people can't sing about Jesus. That's the way that it was put to me. It seemed strange and uh, Judaizing to limit ourselves to the singing of a book in which we can't sing about Jesus. The man who first presented this idea to me actually said that he wanted to be able to sing the name if we just take up the Psalter, we can't sing the name. It did not take me too long in investigation to realize that neither of these charges was true. That the Psalter is full of Christ and we even get to sing the name as often as we sing in the, in the Psalter about God being our Savior. That is the name of Jesus. Just uh, Jesus is Greek. Yeshua or Yehoshua, Savior, is uh, Hebrew. But we do sing the name indeed. And we take in our mouths the name of Messiah, the Anointed One. Psalm 2. But more than all of this, because I'm a lot less concerned with syllables and the pronunciation of a name as I am singing about the person, the substance of the person. Consider uh, Christ in the Psalter. The Psalms were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. We already saw this in in, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. That those holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of Christ. This includes uh, David, Asaph, Jedithan, Heman, prophets all inspired by the Spirit of Christ. The principal psalm writer was David. And David is certainly in the running for the most eminent of the Old Testament types 
of Jesus Christ. It is deep humiliation as he runs from Saul and suffers this terrible persecution, hunted and hated on all sides. And then his miraculous and glorious exaltation to kingly and royal dignity. David wrote far more than any other psalmist. So here we have the spirit of Christ speaking by that eminent type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we find that the Psalter itself is dense with prophecy concerning Christ, his person and his work. You should know that the uh, Psalms, the book of Psalms, is cited more than any other book in proof of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, even more than the prophecy of Isaiah, who is sometimes called the evangelical prophet. He spoke so much, so frequently, and so clearly concerning Jesus. If I might say so, David, even more so. So we have the Spirit of Christ speaking by that eminent uh, type of Christ, David, prophesying concerning Christ to come. And these were to be the songs of the Christ during the days of his earthly ministry in the midst of us. From his childhood to his last breath, Christ's mouth was ever filled with the psalms. And these were songs that were suited and fitting for his own experience as the head of his body, the church. As a matter of fact, don't you sometimes feel as if um, these psalms are more fitting in his mouth than they are in ours? Indeed, sometimes we have the testimony of Peter that, um, that sometimes the psalms were more fitting in the mouth of Christ than they were in the mouth of David who composed them. The 16th Psalm is by Peter taken away from David and ascribed directly to Christ. The glorious Psalm of the Resurrection. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell nor suffer my body to see corruption. And then he says, but David is in the grave and his grave is with us to this day. What was David speaking about except the Savior Christ? And so on the cross we find the words of Psalm 22 in the mouth of the Savior. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. At the end of uh, the Lord's Supper, the Gospel of Matthew says that the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples sang a hymn. If they followed the custom, and it is probable that they did, they would have been concluding the Passover with the singing of Psalm 118. Look with me, Psalm 118, uh, verse 22. They are singing after the Lord's Supper. And right before they begin their journey to Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested and begin his last sufferings. Verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light by the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. And so with these matchless words on their lips and in their minds, the stone which the builders had rejected has become the head of the corner. The sacrifice being bound to the uh, altar. And save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. With these ringing in their lips, Jesus goes to his last sufferings a book that is if I might say so more fitting in the mouth of Jesus Christ than it is in any of us this uh, by way of digression we'll talk about this more in uh, coming weeks I do imagine is this not also a partial resolution to the problem of the imprecatory psalms certainly it's altogether fitting that the Lord Jesus Christ pray against and wish the downfall of the impenitent and the reprobate his implacable foes sometimes we feel a bit awkward in the singing of these because we don't know ultimately who the Lord's enemies are that even someone as violently hostile to the church as Saul of Tarsus might yet be beloved of the Lord and it is hard for us to know but the Lord Jesus Christ knows those who belong to him. And these psalms are altogether fitting in his mouth. Perfect in his mouth. And even those penitential psalms, remember that he mediates our repentance. Um, he is guilty of no sin, but he does mediate our repentance before the throne of grace. The head speaking on behalf of the body. Are these psalms not fitting in his mouth? One final thing to consider, and again, my, my point has been living contact with our Jesus in our worship. The Bible portrays the living and ascended Christ as still singing in the midst of his brethren, the high priest in the midst of his churches, revealing God to us and mediating our worship to God. Turn with me to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. The Lord Jesus Christ is still declaring 
God's name to the brethren through his prophetic office. And he still sings God's praise in the midst of the churches. We think rightly of our service of song. We think rightly of our songs. If we think of ourselves as joining him in his songs. It took me some uh, bit of time to uh, fully unravel it. But at the end I saw just how empty the objection was. That upon full consideration the book was full of Christ. Far from being an Old Testament book. It is a Catholic book in the sense that it's fitting for the church in all times and ages. But it has so very little of the old administration in it that sometimes it seems to me to be more of a New Testament book. And the difficulty is not that we have been asked to sing with the saints of old, but that they from of old were always asked to sing with us concerning our Savior their Savior and ours, but fully uh, to light in these times of uh, the Gospel. So our Lord Jesus Christ sings in the midst of the brethren. And when we lift our voices in song, we sing with Him, the body, with the head, and under His leadership and guidance. So how important is the regulative principle of worship? How important to you are proper gospel notions? These things are eternal life for us. It is of the utmost importance to our eternal well-being that we get the gospel right. And people of God, how important is it that you live in a practical, real, and living communion with the Savior. These great things are at stake. Let us pray together.